There is nothing wrong with your internet. Do not attempt to adjust your settings. We are controlling the podcast. We control the squealing and the screams. We can make your heart flutter, your eyes blur from tears, or sharpen your mind to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit back. We are in control of what you hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your settings. You are about to experience the awe and mystery known as the female mind. You are now entering the Fangirl Zone. We will continue exploring, discovering new worlds, new civilizations. Welcome to the Captain's Chair, a podcast on all shows in the Star Trek universe on the Fangirl Zone. I'm Chief Engineer Steve, and joining me on this mission into the unknown is... I'm Richard Dave, and tonight we'll be discussing Episode 7 of Season 4 of Star Trek Discovery. Now, what'd you think of this episode? <laughs> I'm going to try and restrain myself. I, well, I didn't like it that much. It's, it's way too treacly. They've gotten so soft. I can't imagine all this heartfelt emotion happening on uh, TOS or TNG, let alone any of the movies. It's you know, it's not bad if if you're into human feelings and are exploring human feelings as opposed to artificial feelings. Yes. <laughs> so okay, I get it. Right. But what? So you know, I know we're not rating it <laughs> originally. Originally, as a salute to Fred. Also, I was going to give it one out of five whispering captains. <laughs> I just, after watching it again, I'll give it a two. <laughs> oh. I know. Woohoo! It just gets a little too treacly for me. Yeah. Too too sentimental. Yeah, I, I kind of felt pretty much the same way. It was just a whole lot of. Feelings. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, no other way to put it. I mean, we go from I love yous to I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Yeah, I know. That was a bit much. Now, and I enjoyed the, the Zora stuff more than anything else. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> well, yeah. the robot's good. But yeah. I like the way Kovic played Stamets, and <laughs> that was slick. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's get into this episode. So, episode seven, But to Connect. Tensions rise as representatives from across the galaxy gather to confront the threat of the dark matter anomaly, DMA. Sora's new sentience raises difficult questions. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> I decided not to be the ship's computer, essentially. Right. Well, as the Discovery undergoes repairs at the Archer Space Dock, Stamets asks Zora about the data analysis from the Void that they had become trapped in. While unable to find a specific location where unknown species 10C comes from, the analysis of the particles from the galactic barrier indicate another origin point. What a many. Yes, a whole bunch. <laughs> <laughs> Incentolic, exasperated, asks how many possible origin points could there be? To which Zora gives an estimate of 147, <laughs> each approximately 100 parsecs wide. Dara clarifies the question had been rhetorical. Yeah, you got to work on that. You got to work on that sentience there, Zora. Yeah. <laughs> 
Stamets muses that they don't even know how long it would take to narrow down where 10C even lived, assuming they could even parse the data. In the meantime, the DMA keeps moving through space. Adira wonders if President Rillick could delay the assembly she was holding involving races from all four quadrants. Stamets offers to speak to Fleet Admiral Vance about getting help from the USS Voyager J, but Adira reminds him that Voyager does not have access to a hundred thousand years of sphere data and believes Zora could cross-reference that data with existing Federation database if given enough time. Yeah, enough time. Just a handful of seconds. Yes. <laughs> so they were they were from uh, all four quadrants yes. of the galaxy? Huh. Supposedly. Huh. I didn't, that, see any Bo- I didn't see any Borg. Exactly. <laughs> or species. What was the species called? Oh, yeah. The, or, the or Borg two, killers, yeah. Five, seven, whatever. The, yeah, I know. Match your match. <laughs> Stamets points out they had already been at it a week, but Zora tells him she only needs a few more moments to plot the coordinates. Say, what? <laughs> Haven't you done this before? Aboard Booker's ship, Burnham waves a toy on a string in front of Grudge, determined to win her over. (laughs) Good luck with that. Booker notices she has made some progress as Grudge is no longer hissing at her, having gone from hostility to utter indifference. He jokes that the next step was aloof disdain. That's pretty cat. Yes, (laughs) very cat. Yeah. Booker tells her he is going to take a walk, but Burnham thinks he's going to check in on Stamets' progress. He asks her how she can be so patient, and she admits she's not, but focused on what she could control. The cat toy rather than the cat, as she puts it. (laughs) Yep. She is confident that Stamets will find the coordinates, but they need to continue to be patient. As if in response to that, Stamets calls the captain to engineering. Booker hopes it's good news, but Stamets begins by saying there was a problem. You know what? I, I don't think he should call her to engineering. He no. should just call her. Yes. 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 Stamets do. Captain Burnham. Uh, come in, Stamets. Yeah. What do you need? <laughs> don't say come to engineering. Come on, man. Remember your rank. Yep. They had determined the origin point for Species 10C. Burnham believes this is good news and asks what's the problem. Well, Stamets allows Zora to explain. (laughs) Found the coordinates, but she is keeping them to herself because she knows if she gives the coordinates, the crew will want to travel there, placing them in danger. Burnham appreciates Zora's concern for their well-being, but such a decision was for the captain and her superiors to make, and as captain, she orders Zora to give her the coordinates. But to her surprise, Zora refuses. In your face. Yeah. (laughs) That was always a danger. Yes, it was. (laughs) So, in her ready room, Burnham consults with Dr. Kovich, who understands. He was less jerky this week, by the way. Yes, he was. (laughs) Sure you don't have any. Maybe his appointments stack up. He he gets a little on edge. Yeah, more than likely. Yeah, so Kovich, who understands that Zora has been experiencing emotions, Something Burnham believes to be a natural evolution. Kovach asks if Zora has ever refused an order before. Burnham concedes that this is new, but is confident she can get Zora to give her the coordinates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kovach sardonically notes that's his deal. Notes he was unaware that a sheer background in cognitive science with a speciality in artificial intelligence in sentience and intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> Burnham concedes. Um. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Burnham concedes she doesn't, but what she does have is an established baseline of trust. Also in your face, Kovic. Yeah. <laughs> I love their back and forth. 
Oh, yeah. That, that, that can only get heated as we go on. Oh, yeah. He can be a pain, but, of course, uh, she always has that inner rebel. Coleridge points out this trust has not paid off, and that when Admiral Vance had asked him to look into the matter, he was quite clear the matter was time-sensitive and of the highest priority. So I wonder if uh, – so Admiral Vance asked him to look into it, but he's pretty much a free agent, that being Coleridge. Do you think he, Vance actually outranks him? In some sense, or is it like the uh, Stamets uh, Burnham thing? Like you don't summon her to engineering; you at, you just call her, dude. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we're not even. We don't even know if uh, COVID is an AI or something. Right? Yeah. I don't really think it's a matter of rank because I think they're both in different areas of right. Starfleet. So yeah, he he seems obviously civilian. Yes. I don't know. Well. He did ask him. He didn't order him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Brenner reiterates she can handle it as it is her ship, but Covert reminds her that it was Starfleet ship. Boy, that was a slip up. Yes. (laughs) Uh, No, it isn't. And Starfleet had regulations prohibiting fully sentient integrated units. Did you know that? Did we Uh, know that? That was something else that was brand new to me was... Fully sentient integrated units. <laughs> yep. Hmm. On what their experience is with them. Yeah. Was that another time war uh, regulation that came out afterwards? Hmm. If that was what Zora now was, that was only the beginning of the problem. In the meantime, Captain Saru would get him situated with Zora while Burnham's presence was needed at President Relic's assembly. And poor lady, she's getting summoned everywhere. Yep. <laughs> Experto Crete Captain, he tells her, basically in Latin for Trusty Expert, telling her they both had their duties to attend to. As Burnham walks to the assembly with Booker, he asks if Kovic can get the coordinates from. Oops, sorry. See, here's that piece of paper. Whoopsie. <laughs> sorry, worried about what happened if you couldn't and get the DMA moved to another inhabited system. What? <laughs> Burnham agrees, which is why she hoped to have a plan ready for when they did get the coordinates. As she enters, she is spotted by Rilak, who gestures her over. How long is it since we've been, has we seen Rilak? Is it one or two episodes? Two? Yeah, I thought so, too. We gave her a break. <laughs> With her is General Ndoye of United Earth Defense Force, having been promoted since Discovery visited Earth the year before. And she had a cute little hat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Burnham congratulates her on her promotion. Glad to see Earth represented. It's so weird having Earth uh, represented. It was such a central part of the Federation. And now they're just here to to watch stuff. And Doya offers similar congratulations for Burnham's promotion to Mere Captain. And has a small correction that the United Earth is also represented represented Titan, having elected a new government with a more inclusive approach inspired by Burnham's action. Wow, she's a hero all over. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Rilak expresses the hope that this will mean seeing more of Endoy in the future. The general replies that they would see. Ooh, Koi. As in Koi Endoy. As Koi Endoy leaves, Brim realizes that Rilak is hoping for Earth to return to the Federation as well. Rilak admits she is, both uh, because it is her mother's ancestral homeworld and because it would be good for the founding member of the Federation to return to the fold. I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> She then mentions the unexpected challenge with the coordinates, which Burnham calls a slight delay. <laughs> it looks forward to Kovic's solution to the problem. As the assembly begins, Booker is joined by Ruin Tarka, who greets him in a friendly manner, but stresses that friendly should not be confused for friendship. Yeah. <laughs> it was already a chill emanating from Booker anyway. Yeah. Booker knows got this a is a lot not- colder. Yeah, it did. <laughs> Tarka showing up. Yep. Brooker notes that this did not seem like Tarka's ideal setting, and the scientist agrees. 
politicians are like Corinthian sulfur slugs, he says, small brain meat sacks full of hot gas, but they provide a great means to an end, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> or can't they? Yeah. <laughs> Not sure what that would be. To Booker, this sounds like a Tarka has something specific in mind, but Tarka cryptically suggesting how the day goes first. Relic greets the delegates, noting that the Federation now had 60 member worlds, and while the views of all present did not always align, they're all committed to the safety of their shared galaxy. No opting out. Remember that? Yep. (laughs) The scope of the peril that threatened them was unprecedented. As for the scope of the Assembly, which sees an act of trust between them all, and expresses gratitude for their willingness to collaborate. She reminds them that they have several rece- received several intelligence reports of their collective knowledge about the DMA, as well as their efforts to stop since the destruction of Quajon. While none were successful, she emphasizes that there is a new hope. Hey, new hope! What's that from? Yeah. <laughs> as they would soon have the exact location of res- those responsible somewhere beyond the edge of the galaxy. This causes something of a stir among the delegation. So we had several theories about – I had a theory a last broadcast that maybe there was something inside the galaxy that beamed out and then boomeranged back. Right. But now they seem pretty sure that it's from outside the galaxy. Maybe that's the only way they can safely operate whatever it is they're doing. It may be. The task before them, Rilla continues, was to determine the best course of action. General Endoy believes an armada must be assembled to attack. President Tarina of Navarre believes – uh, communication is the best baseline for action that the Orion delegate stresses the need for countermeasures. Uh, the Orion delegate, that's the green one, right? Yep. No, no offense, Orion. I looked her up. Uh, that's Nicole Dickinson. And when you go to IMDb, she has got a ton of work for Star Trek Discovery. 14 episodes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. She does a lot of stunt work, but she, she played, uh, Yeoman Colt, she's played a Klingon, Orion Delegate, Strong Reculator. She's been a Vulcan Spectator, a Cardassian Captain, Keeley Matriarch, which was in Die Trying. Right. She was Hadley, Yeoman Colt, Yeoman Colt again, Klingon Guard Monk number two, Klingon Gardener Monk number two. <laughs> she was in Bird of Prey, Klingon number two, a Talosian, a Mokai Guard, and a couple more Klingons. What do you think of that? Wow. How's that, how's that resume? That's pretty uh, good. I'm surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I clicked on it and went, oh, my God, she's been in a ton, and this is the first time I noticed her. Sorry. Right. <laughs> Sorry. I think it's the green. <laughs> but it's interesting. They give so much work to uh, to stunt people, and the stunt people can get a chance to do uh, something that's of their own and not, you know, as a double. Right. Yeah. I liked it. So, see, where was I? Oh, yeah. Relic brings the meetings back to order and turns to Endoy. The general believes their hostility should be met with force, but Tarina points out that the DMA follows no discernible pattern, making an unlikely choice of weapon for such advanced species. I think we also discussed whoever conducting these exercises or experiments, they don't know what trouble they're causing on another end. That's possible. Yes, absolutely it's possible. She is emphatic that they cannot assume hostile intent, but Endoy counters that actions, not intent, is what matter. Jeez, Earth is pretty bossy. <laughs> Except pointing out the nature the nature of animal species, such as a tartan bull consuming Danubian bloodworms and polyphemus moss consuming the entirety of the farmer's crops. Yet, mouths not ascribed to either of those species in your face in Doe. Yeah. <laughs> she goes, she resorts to the insect world. Yeah. So, 
problem's a little bigger than the insect world right now. Burnham stresses that he cannot judge species 10C's motives based on their own cultural context and that more information is needed. Provost uh, Stakiar agrees with Burnham, believing that their only logical path forward, a peaceful approach to first contact, based on scientific principles, what is Starfleet's prime directive? Wow. You know, you know how much respect they have for the prime directive across the centuries. Yes. <laughs> First contact, absolutely. Oh, boy. Aboard Discovery, Saru speaks with Kovacs, telling him that Stamets and Dr. Culber are on their way as their insights may prove valuable. He agrees Zora is undergoing changes but believes she means well. Yikes. Kovacs points out, that one always meant well to themselves, but the problem was that he, what they meant for others. Yeah, sure, COVID, you hologram AI yourself. <laughs> <laughs> one of these days we're going to find wires in them, even though they don't use wires anymore. Right. <laughs> Stamets enters and tells Zora to play music and calls the others in for a group hug. That was so silly. Kovic yes. cancels the music, realizing that Stamets is out of his mind. I mean, wanted a private conversation out of Zora's earshot in case she reacted negatively or even vengefully. I know. Could you imagine she just like come up with a hologram, a Romulan or Klingon, and starts beating the crap out of everybody. Yeah. He's off. But is adamant that full transparency was critical for the process. It's hard to figure out that guy. Yep. He begins by stating that Zora has coordinates, but she refuses to divulge, and she replies that she does. It would endanger the crew. No. Kovic notes that Stamets is concerned by this. Stamets admits he is terrified, as not only Zora is now fully sentient, she also has unlimited access to all of Discovery systems and is allowing her emotions to supersede the natural functioning of the ship. That would be my biggest worry. Yes, it would. What does this switch do? <laughs> <laughs> I can t- I'm going to tell you a story about a switch and my experience with one. <laughs> Someday, Steve. It didn't, didn't go well. The previous interaction the crew had with a sentient AA was control, which nearly destroyed all life as they knew it. Saru agrees they don't want another control, and Culver reminds Stamets that control never expressed emotion. To Stamets, however, that made the problem worse. Withholding the coordinates was the tip of the iceberg of what she... What if she became more angry and opened an airlock? Yeah, really. Or became scared and fired off uh, photon torpedoes. That, totally reasonable. Yep. It would have no way to stop her. Kovic asked Zora when Zora began achieving uh, emotional awareness. Zora admits she is not sure, but believes it began after Discovery merged with the Sphere data and that the ships refit with 32nd century technology, except for hallways and yep. doors. <laughs> accelerated that process. He points out there is a prescription against uh, sentient AI being integrated into Starfleet systems or is aware, but admits given the way her sentience developed, she's not sure what that means. That's convenient. I don't know if that stumped me a little, but I I guess you're confused about, you know, you don't remember being born. Right. right? Yeah, absolutely. However, she came into being, Covers tells her that he believes she is a risk. He has the authority to extract her consciousness from the ship and place it in another form, which is what we talked about a little bit last week. Yes. <laughs> However, I don't know. Kovic seems awfully sure of himself. And they just mentioned how do they know she's not going to fire up a bunch of photon torpedoes. Kovic just walked right into that one. Yes, he did. I'm just gonna, well, I'm just going to fire these photon torpedoes. What do you think of that? So, so who points out there's... Uh, have been unsuccessful attempts to remove the spirit data in the past, but Kovic replies that technology has advanced since then. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, well, I'd like to see it. <laughs> yeah, seeing it would be good. At that moment, Adira enters with Gray, both offer to help and speak on Zora's behalf. Uh, I almost fell out of my chair. 
yeah. when I saw that. <laughs> that was fun. Not in a good way. It's like two little protesters walking in. Yes. Where's security? Doesn't anybody stand outside that door? This is pretty important. <laughs> Do you have a key? Oh, boy. So Zora thanks them, but has a solution which Kovic invites her to share. Zora is adamant about not wanting to harm the crew, but understands why they would be afraid. She would, remembering the experience with control, and also felt the fear herself in the subspace void. Did she? Yes, she did. Yeah. She admits to the feeling... Uh, feeling fear now and the possibility of leaving the ship as it was her life form and she was attached to it as they were to theirs. Aha! That's something else we kind of dallied with in our last podcast. Like, what form? I, I want to see the Annabelle Wallace form. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Singing in their 10 forward. But I guess she's pretty happy with her form being the ship. I don't think they're going to explore that because I also suggest so maybe they can find her body yeah. like her. Uh, yeah, I guess not. <laughs> Yeah, they may be able to put a little part of her in there just so they can interface with her a little easier, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. As a compromise, Zora creates a fail-safe device. There's some boomer talk in there, because one of my favorite uh, Cold War movies is Fail-Safe. Yes. (laughs) Henry Fonda, the great Henry Fonda. And uh, what's his name? He played... Uh, Major Nelson and I Dream of Genie now, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what was the other series he was in? Was it Dallas? Yes. Yes, okay. All right, sorry, everyone. Boomer talk. <laughs> Should there be any sign of threatening behavior, the device would expunge her existence. She hopes that would erase their concerns and persuade Kovic to let her remain. You know what it really does? When you hit it, a, a, it pops out little sparks and... Uh, confetti yeah (laughs) happy birthday (laughs) sue begins to ask this device would essentially allow them to terminate zora to which she says it will the others all share uneasy glances at the assembly the debate continues about first contact with tarina emphasizing the var's advanced and shield technology to provide protection during a non-aggressive first contact and we we know all about them in first contact yep and Doi is adamant that preparation must be made should they respond with hostility. Well, it's prudent. Emperor Liu of the Alshan Force speak up, saying that the Federation had reminded them that they need not fear the unknown and, and cannot presume ill intent and believes that the same courtesy should be extended to Species 10C. I'm glad they brought that up again. Yep. A little re- reference not too long ago. Tarina agrees as too many lives have been lost already and they should not be reckless. Tarkar, watching from the gallery, glances at Booker. Know your moment, he says, as he transports himself right next to Rillick. Uh, how the hell does he get away with that? I know. You think there would be a dampening field? Yes. Prevent stuff like that? Exactly. But no. You but do no. not leave the president unprotected. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. He, why can't he use the door like they do in on board Discovery? Yeah, that this site to site... Uh, Transport comes and goes, you know, when it's convenient. While they were debating war or peace in the craters of the DMA, he reminds them of the real problem, the DMA itself and the device controlling it. He points to a number of delegates in their efforts to stop just firing 1,600 quantum torpedoes, scrapping uh, probes and liquidating latinum to figure out how to get a ship inside. Yeah, the guy looked embarrassed. How much latinum have you gone through? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, they had all failed because, for a start, they weren't him. <laughs> for a start, thanks. And for another, they did not have something that he did, a device he had created based on the experiments on Discovery, a weapon capable of destroying the DMA. And unlike your efforts, this will actually work. 
He's off my Christmas card list. Oh, yeah. He like, <laughs> chastises Tarka for flaunting the protocols of the Assembly for his own benefit, but Tarka reminds her that the Assembly wanted a plan, and he had one for everyone's benefit. Thanks, God. Yeah, really doesn't allows him to elaborate. Based on his research on the device, Tarka explains the DMA controller required an enormous amount of power. To sever that power source, he intended to create a device capable of creating a cascading subspace burst, which would collapse the anomaly. From the gallery, Booker is nodding with approval. Yes, yes, yes. When asked how he intends to deploy it, Tarka replies that there is an area of relative calm near the device, and his plan is to use Discovery to jump in, deliver the weapon, and jump out. And it would be over in less than five seconds. As you don't think they, whoever these people were, 10C, or haven't anticipated something like that? You would think, especially if they were intending it to be a weapon. Yeah. If, uh, you know, we, in the last episode, we thought Tarka might have been the main subject, you know? Right. And he still might be. Oh, if he, yes. he, he sucker If he suckers in Booker and uh, the new modifications and jumps in, how do we know? He's not using this effort to perfect the DMA. He says he needs it to go visit his friend, right? That's part of the plan. He, 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 him and his scientist buddy that caught by the Emerald Chain were made their plan to mm-hmm. meet in this another, another, another universe. galaxy where everything wow. is just wow. wonderful. Peachy, I know. How the hell could that ever happen? I that's impossible. <laughs> Maybe there's one out there and he found it. Right. <laughs> he must be bored stiff. Yes. So how, And you see how, well, I'm sure we're coming up to that, but Booker kind of melted like, ah. Yeah. Oh, boy. I wonder if he's grifting him. Maybe not. I bet he is. Okay. As it was her ship being proposed, Burnham asked for clarification. A cascading subspace burst sounds a lot like an explosion caused by an isolytic burst, a weapon that had been banned by the Kittimer Accords nearly a thousand years, and for good reason, as Rillick points out. That seems like yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) Tarka, however, believes an exception can be made given the severity of the threat. Tarina and Burnham both point out the massive damage that could be done to subspace and to warp travel in that area and burnham also asked what would happen if the burst went through and harmed people on the other side of the wormhole something tarka callously dismisses as collateral damage ouch yeah sounding more and more like a hitler mm-hmm. booker now transports onto the main platform asking after that that the people behind the dma had done did it matter what happened to them yeah, if they didn't mean to kill everybody. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Burnham believes it does, as they could see it as an act of war and retaliate with firepower they wouldn't even know the scale of. And this is not to mention catapulting a toxic void across the galaxy. Tarka concedes the risk, but firmly believes the risk is far greater if they do than if they do nothing. I'm not so sure about that. Burnham is emphatic <laughs> that detonating such a weapon would send the wrong message and believes that they should wait until they get the coordinates for Species 10C and make peaceful first contact to determine intent. They weren't going to do nothing. No. 
They were going to make a first contact. Yes. It was not the flashiest idea, she admits, but it was in line with Starfleet and Federation ideals. Tarka bluntly tells her that while she clung to her ideals, the DMA continued its work putting billions of lives at risk. Seize the options before them. Approach 10C directly or destroy the DMA controller immediately. Calls a recess so that the delegates could consult individual counsel before they voted. On Discovery, Stamets examines Zora's failsafe device, which he agrees will fulfill what it was intended to do. How the hell does he... (laughs) <laughs> he tossed it in the air, so ooh, it looks deadly. Yeah, no way he would know that that would eliminate a sentient being. Come I on. know, what if he decided to examine it somehow yeah. and he set it off? <laughs> he thanks Zora for easing at least some of his concerns, but still has a problem with Zora withholding the coordinate. Gray, however, is horrified at the idea of having a failsafe that would essentially kill Zora, believing it to be wrong. Neither Gray nor Adira had any experience with control, so they so did not understand Stamets' apprehension. This is when this is when Gray activates Adira's kill switch. Yeah. Oh, I've had enough of you click. Gray and Adira, however, point out that they were in forms they had never encountered. Gray as a golem and Adira as a human joined to a Trill symbiote. The Trill had wanted to kill Adira at first, but soon developed an acceptance to their joining, something that they should also be considering with Zora's situation. Stamets is emphatic that it was only a safety switch, and if she ever threatened the crew, they'd never have to use it. But she was already defying the captain's orders, so shouldn't they be protected from her if need be? How do, how do we know she's just not going to transport it some, someplace? Yes. <laughs> That's what I do. Yep. Right out this. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Airlock it. Poo. Culber stresses that they could not hold a sentient beating, being's life in their hands for their benefit alone. There must be another way. Saru points out that any one of them could be a threat to the ship. Indeed, he himself knows any number of ways to destroy them all, yet they trusted him. However, Stamets knows Saru and his values, and there were disciplinary measures if he stepped out of line, which he believed was what the failsafe provided Zora. Kovic, however, brings up a point. Oh, you know what, Steve? This is why they need a a Vulcan. I mean, a Navari on the ship. That cold logic. Yep. Zora's willingness to terminate herself runs counter to her core program. And Zora counters that it does not. Oh, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I know. If it was a Vulcan, that one eyebrow would have gone up. Yes, absolutely. When asked for her primary function, she replies that it was to care for the crew of the Discovery. (laughs) Something Hammonds knows was not the core programming of the ship's computer, leading him to ask who gave her those parameters. (laughs) Well, dumbass, I did. <laughs> uh, I did. Uh, that's my idea. Good grief. Back at the assembly, Burnham explains her reasoning to Book that she was not speaking out against him. He tells her he knows, but reminds her that she was always the one jumping into action, asking her how it was any different when she initiated the war with the Klingons. Ooh, yep. Ooh, I know. Bam, should have told him that. (laughs) Yeah, Burnham points out that she had an understanding of Klingon culture, but no one has any idea about Species 10C. She understands the appeal of Tarka's plan, but the risks were too great. 
Book, however, thinks that risks are just that, only risks. What was known for sure is that the DMA would keep killing if nothing was done to stop it. It's like the villagers showing up at Frankenstein's castle with yes. torches and pitchforks. Yes. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. Burnham believes that communication and diplomacy were the reason the Federation has endured and is sure the diplomatic approach will save the most lives in the end. Booker, however, is not. and notes that while Burnham might understand how he feels, she doesn't agree with his feelings and tells her he needs to take a walk. A real one this time. <laughs> Ooh. As Booker leaves, Burnham is approached by Rillick. Burnham asks what solution she favors, but Rillick is sure Burnham knows the answer to that already. Just tell me. Yeah, Burnham urges her to speak out for the diplomatic option, but Rillick refuses. The effort to bring the delegates together for the assembly had been difficult enough, and she had to remain impartial. However, if she was up for it, Rillick believes Burnham could speak for it instead. Oh, just put it on Burnham's shoulders. I know. Chicken. <laughs> Who's the president? Well, I can't do <laughs> No, I, I have to be impartial. impartial. An impartial president? Who elects an impartial president? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Booker approaches Tarka and pleads with him to go back into the assembly chamber, as his plan was the only one that made sense. Tarka, however, concedes that Burnham was good at poking holes. Booker is aware of these risk levels, but perhaps Tarka could convince them he could make the device safer. Tarka knows one could not make isolytic weapons safer, air quotes, as it would defeat the purpose. Yeah. <laughs> when asked what his next move was, Tarka admits he doesn't know. Booker reminds him that they're about to vote, and Tarka replies curtly that he is acutely aware. Book Booker then notices the scar on the back of his neck and the remnant of the Emerald Chain slave controller, and he got rid of his own scar as soon as he could. Ha! Something we also discussed in the last episode. Tarka replies that they all wore their grief in their own way with a pointed glance at Booker's Ikujen amulet. He suggests that Booker be the one to make the case to the assembly. Booker asks why Tarka was so passionate about destroying the, the DMA. Tarka sarcastically asks whether he couldn't just be a good citizen concerned with, about the galaxy. But Booker retorts that good citizens weren't concerned about finding their moment or gutted about losing it. <laughs> Tarka admits that he needs to go home to a new home in another universe. Boing. Yeah. What's I wonder what the difference is between another universe and another dimension, since they exist on different planes anyway. Right. And if they all mirror each other, if they mirror each other, yeah. Do they mirror each other? That's a good question. That is a good question. Booker asks if it was the mirror universe, but Tucker replies that there are countless parallel universes. He did say parallel. Yes, he did. Each with his own quantum signatures, and that he had found one with no war, no burn, no emerald train. One where we could live free. It's just got a man behind a curtain with a, you know, a big green head. Yes. Booker asked about the we. Target explains he had a friend, a fellow scientist who had been held in the same lab. Oh, Syra had been work. Yeah, oh, Syra had been working on dilithium alternatives for years, but his friend was relentlessly optimistic. Something Tarka admits rubbed off on him. Don't they came so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Hard to see now. They came up with a plan and knew exactly how much power they needed to cross into another universe. <laughs> Which makes okay. even more sense. Yeah, that I know. His friend is, had already gotten over there, and he doesn't know what it's doing to us over here. He, he's uh, he's trying to get uh, Tarka over there, and he's exercising that power, and it turns out it's killing billions. Yes. 
his the DMA is his is his effort to get to Tarka. Right. <laughs> Transportation for Tarka. Yeah, yeah. Geez, I hope this he keeps hitting the switch going. Gee, I hope this works. I miss him. <laughs> he came up with okay. Booker asked what happened. I escaped. He didn't. Tarka replies, although perhaps maybe he did. Yeah, maybe he did. It made it to another universe. They had promised that if they ever got separated, that's where they would meet. Hmm. I'm getting suspicious about this, Steve. Yes, very. He is adamant that he has to keep his promise and assures Booker they would both get what they need. The DMA would be destroyed, but the power source would not. He again tells Booker that he has to be the one to speak to the assembly. Booker takes this to mean he has to talk to Burnham. Oh, that too, uh, Tarka agrees. <laughs> Rilla calls for the assembly to reconvene for the vote when Booker approaches, adding to address the assembly. Rilla agrees and gives him the floor. Booker introduces him, himself as the son of Quajon, as well as what his people would have called Mila Ji, a speaker for the dead. He had lived with the loss of, of his world every day since it happened, and he wants to make sure none of them ever feel that pain. While he values the communication and diplomacy as much as the Federation does in normal times, he stresses these are not normal times and they must defend themselves against the DMA threat. Using Tarka's weapon carries risk, but he emphasizes that's not using it, not using it carrying risk as well. He pleads for them not to wait until they've lost everything before they act and to end the threat now quickly before it caused further harm. It's like uh, Tarka leaves the applause from the gallery, blah, blah. <laughs> it's like uh, I just thought of Pearl Harbor and how much they knew in advance. They did know yes, something. Absolutely. They knew something was up. Yeah. And there was, uh, let's call it inaction, I yes. suppose, or not enough proactive action. So if you want to look at it from a historical point of view, you can look there. Right. So, Rillick asks if anyone will speak for the opposing view. Well, a glance at Burnham. Duh. He, she sent, she uh, set her up for that earlier. Yes. Burnham remained silent, seemingly convinced by Booker's argument. I'm surprised Rillick didn't really shoot her a look after that. When Rillick begins to say there were no further remarks, Burnham offers to speak, glancing apologetically at Booker. Here we go. Yep. Back on Discovery, Stemis examines Zora's system and sees that the hardware remains the same, which leads the wires, though, which leads Coverage to believe that the operating system has evolved, given the Zora is able to define her own parameters, but no evidence of that could be found. Zora herself doesn't know the answer to this either. Adira, however, conveniently, spots something in the computer course schematics, a tiny area in the optical translator cluster. Doesn't uh, share any known syntax. What could it be, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> when Culber asks what that means, Stamets replies simply that it, it shouldn't exist. Adira had written it off as a holdover from a 930-year-old technology. So she had seen it before? Yeah, and didn't say anything. But, yeah, I know. Uh, Sora recognizes it as part of her being, but did not intentionally create it. Assuring them she has nothing to hide, she allows the crew to full access to explore the cluster. Adira brings it up on the holopad and begins showing prior events from the past when Discovery went to the future and when they first encountered the sphere. I always think it's funny the way they toss away these 3D holograms. Yes. Nope, don't. It's even like disappear into the trash. Nope, nope, nope. nope. Yes. <laughs> So, uh, Kovich asks if Zora is sure that she did not create her, this herself, and Zora replies, she is, with her, with her digital fingers behind her back. Yes. <laughs> Cole realizes this may be Zora's subconscious mind, and that the memories of the ship's past events were her dreams, filtering the sphere memories and her own experiences through her new emotional understanding. Did you ever see the movie? This is, this is 
boomer, pre-boomer type, Forbidden Planet. Yeah. There was a sentience. They created a machine that was so great that the sentience exists, and it, it actually followed the subconscious minds of the people on the planet until there were no more people on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Oops. <laughs> Saruk and Kira seeing these images as a window into what Zora values and prioritizes the lives and well-being of the crew. Gray reacts particularly strong to the image of the Trill homeworld. Boy, did she. Yeah. Or Stamets wonders. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I cut yourself. Stamets wonders if Zora could have cherry picked what she had thought the crew wanted to see, but Kovic believes Zora was totally unaware of it, as there would be other factors if she had created it intentionally. I don't know how he puts his faith in that. She's capable of anything. Right. That's where, and we'll get there too, the trust gets involved. The images displayed are the bonds of connections and love between the crew, and Culver realizes why she held the coordinates, and that's why I gave it one and then two. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, where are we going? Stamets asked if all this artificial intelligence could, could dream, but Kovic replies that none of them can unless specifically programmed to do so. Zora adds that perhaps artificial intelligence fails to the fully defined her. Uh-oh. Yep. When Kovic asks what would, she replies she is the sum of the sphere's life and the entirety of Discovery systems, logs, missions, and history. And she was also more than the sum of those parts. This is like a uh, chess match with each side making a move. Oh, yeah. But it was a fun chess match. <laughs> yes. Adira believes this would make Zora an entirely new life form, and Zora concurs, adding that she belonged on Discovery. The crew is my family. The scene shifts back and forth. I wonder how they're going to explore that in the future. If, right. if, she, if she's not a danger to the crew and she embodies herself as a ship, um, I don't know. I think I'd rather see her as a hologram of Annabelle Wallace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But maybe she, they're just happy the way she that is. But how, how much character time would they actually give the ship's computer? Right, yeah. <laughs> so the she, uh, scene shifts back and forth between Burnham and Stamets as Burnham begins to speak before the assembly, reminding them that their existence shaped them. And at the same time, Stamets admits he wants to trust Zora as he does the crew, but finds it difficult. Burnham emphasizes that before they uh, made the decision they would lead to destruction on both sides, they had to reach first an understanding. Stamets, too, is trying to understand Zora, getting his head around how the others could be okay with Zora's existence while he could not. Burnham reminds the Assembly of the Federation's mission to seek out new life and new civilization, not to destroy, but to connect, even in the face of uncertainty. What happened to the old Burnham? While they, were, while they were not all Federation members, Zodai is the ideal. She could still guide them, especially now, and they could not let fear define them. I uh, got you there. Stamets believes that trust is a choice, and he is willing to make that choice if it went both ways. Now, this is logic. This is where you wanted that, that Vulcan. Yeah. And both emphasize their, to their audiences that the only way to move forward was to work together. Stamets tells Zora if she's is asking them for to trust her. She needs to trust them as well and ask for the coordinates. Boom, that was a great chess move right there. Yes. <laughs> Burnham tells the assembly that they need to decide who they wanted to be if they wanted to be, uh, if they wanted to lash out blindly regardless of the risk or whether they proceeded thoughtfully and worked toward the future they wanted to live in. Also a good point. Booker, however, counters they didn't have the time to discuss philosophical questions. What mattered was actions they took. Wow, your plant's already gone. we got plenty of time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, book. <laughs> that was a burn. A Burnham. Burnham knows that there are different points of view in the room, but holds out the hope that when a decision is reached, they would stand together and move forward as a united front. Booker replies that some differences were too great 
And sometimes one time I accept the consequences of that. Zorto. Yeah, boy. A little chilly in the room. Yes. Zortel Stamets, he has given her much to consider and asked for a moment to think. Saru compliments how beautifully Stamets expressed his concern. He should play chess. Yeah. Stamets jokes that living with a therapist, and he glances at Culver, <laughs> and picked up a thing or two. A moment later, Zora speaks up again, having reflected on what Stamets had said. As trust was both an emotional and logical act, she performed a behavioral performance assessment, which showed that the action of Stamets and the crew have to be cons- consistently taken with care for others and for the Federation, something she had not considered earlier. Even if some fear remains, she admits she finds the new realization quite calming and understands the dire for repercuss... Repercuss... I can't say it. Reprocity. Reprocity. No, that's not it, Steve. She thanks Sandwich for the understanding and displays a series of numbers on the screen, the coordinates they had sought. Brillac brings the assembly to a vote, calling for those in favor of peaceful first contact to raise their hands and those in favor of striking the anomaly to not raise them. Uh, United Earth and the Orions are among those who keep their hands down while the Navarre, Ferengi, Trill, and Doran and Alshane delegations all raise their hand. Brynham also raises her own. A vote for a peaceful first contact carries and Rillac expresses the hope that those who voted against it continue to work with them and that of course, all data will be continued to be shared. As Booker leaves, Burnham prepares to follow, but stop by Rillick. Discovery will be needed to take the lead. Get out of my way, lady. I've got to talk to my boyfriend. Yes. <laughs> I feel like we've uh, just created the Grand Canyon in our relationship. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Now, I do like the way they cut that scene going back and forth between Stamets and Burnham and what they were saying. That was really well done, I thought. Yes, it was definitely effective. Yes, very effective. So, got to find <laughs> something super positive to say about the episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, see, I, sometimes I think they just spell it out a little too easily for the audience. Yeah. But, you know, I get it. I get it. Saru looks outside the ready room windows while Kovic continues his evaluation. They are then joined by Stamets, who asks if the evaluation is completed. Nearly is all Kovic will say. Saru notes the doctor had been just as tight-lipped with him as well. (laughs) Kovach asked Stamets how he would feel if he said he was leaning towards extraction and Stamets thinks it would be a bad idea. Kovach notices that Stamets still has concerns. Well, yeah, I feel good about the progress we made today, but tomorrow still worries me. Mm. Kovach says, tell her, not me. Stamets. Thereby proving that Kovach is an AI himself. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Stamets does so, saying that he knows she means well and values and respects Starfleet and the crew, but is concerned that she can still prioritize her feelings over the crew's needs, as well as the captain's orders. He reminds her that they were all under a chain of command, but Zoro was technically not part of it. He replies that she would like to be, which is what Stamets hoped she would say, and turns to Kovic to offer a recommendation. However, Kovic has completed his evaluation and determines that Zora is, in fact, a new life form. Hmm. It feels marvelous, Zora says <laughs> when asked what. She replies, being seen. A little too uh, on the nose there. Yeah, yeah. Under that ruling, Saru realizes that it would mean that Starfleet ban on integrated I. AIs did not apply, and Kovic confirms it does not. 
Stamets offers his recommendation that Zora be enlisted in Starfleet as a specialist, and Saru agrees. If Zora swore to uphold Starfleet rules and regulations, she would be bound by the same laws that governed them all. And Kovach promises to give it his full support. Stamets turns and asks if Zora if she would like to join Starfleet, and she confirms that she does. And everyone that graduated from the academy goes, what the hell? Yes. <laughs> Saru then suggests dispensing with the failsafe, but Zora reminds him that it would not be much of a failsafe if she could dismantle it herself. Yeah. <laughs> Stamets is pleased to offer to do so instead. After he does, he asks Kovic if he really would have extracted Zora if Stamets had not changed his mind. Well, <laughs> Coach's evaluation was as much about Stamets and the crew as it was about Zora. And he could see that partnership was possible on both sides. But if it hadn't, he would have recommended Stamets be assigned to another ship. <laughs> That's his solution? Yes, get rid of Stamets. Uh, get rid of Stamets, oh brother. And Stamets concedes this was as it should be. In the crew lounge, Adira sits alone in front of the trill board game they had been playing with Gray when Gray himself enters and asks to talk. Adira realizes that Gray wants to go to trill, and they tell him to take the shuttle before it leaves the assembly. Gray is surprised that Adira, Adira knew he didn't want to wait. Adira realized it when they saw him light up at the image of the trill in Zora's memories and how he was reacting at that moment. Gray asks Adira to come with him, but they have come to see Discovery as their home, where they are needed, and is confident Gray will make a million of friends. Gray asks that they're worried about the long distance, and they admit that they are, but they have trust in their relationship, and also mentions the snow globe that Tilly left them, saying all is possible. (laughs) Plus, they think Discovery could spare them a few days while they help Gray get settled, and they've already put in for leave. Gray calls them incandescence on feet as they embrace. <laughs> what? <laughs> you look like a candle. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Back in the assembly, Saru approaches Tarina, having hoped to see her at some time, but noting that life got in the way. Finally, let's go. Yeah, Tarina agrees. <laughs> so often did. But she had a few moments before returning to Navarre. She notes what he's holding, and Saru holds out the succulent plant he was holding. He reminds her that she had provided salt tea during the negotiations to bring Navarre back to the Federation, and that the gel from the planet gave the tea its flavor. What a charmer. Yes, it came from a small equatorial desert on Kaminar, and thus would be an ideal for the desert environment on Navarre. Well, didn't you think this one out completely? He sure did. Smooth operator. (laughs) Nearby, Gray, Adira, Stamets, and Culber speak with Guardian Z. Gray thanks him for the opportunity to train. Culber knows that both are capable of taking care of themselves, but Z reassures him that he will look out for them. Stamets mock sternly tells Gray he expects regular reports and will see Adira in a week's time before pulling them all together in a group hug. Back on his ship, Booker places Grudge in a carrying case just as Tarka transports aboard, saying they had 94 seconds before the Federation realized it was gone and he had taken it. The next generation spore drive, that is. Yeah, as much insecurity about that, on that as there is the president. Yeah. Tarka calls the name boring and believes Aurelio should have done better as he opens the case. Booker remarks 
on the small size of the device, while Tarkas sarcastically extols its ability to be installed on any ship once a navigator was no longer required. He would be the hero of Starfleet. <laughs> not there to act. So he just said size doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He integrates the device into Booker's navigation system, telling him the interface worked the same as it did on Discovery. The next part was all on Booker. Entering her quarters, Burnham begins to ask a location for someone, only to find grudges in her case sitting on Burnham's desk, and ends by seemingly asking where grudge is. To yeah. which Zora promptly reports that grudge is five meters from her current yeah, location. That, that was kind of funny. Yes. Like <laughs> right in front of you, lady. What do you ask me for? Uh, never mind. <laughs> she also sees Bur- Booker's comm badge. Acting, activating it, she sees a text message from Booker. I love you, Michael. Please take care of my girl. Thanks. Burnham asks where for Booker. <laughs> Burnham asks for Booker's location. Zora reports he's on his ship now, leaving the shuttle bay. Realizing what he's doing, Burnham transports to the shuttle bay, but too late. Booker's ship has left the shuttle bay. Then Spore jumps away. So, in side-to-side transfer, but this time, instead of putting herself aboard book ship, she just puts herself in the shuttle bay. Right. Uh, missed it by that much. Right. How come I... Zora tells her it's leaving. Yeah, get on it. Yes. No. <laughs> oh, these little bits of logic. Yeah. Oh, well. I, I'm still not going to budge off my two, and I no. wasn't one. <laughs> But I think we have some Easter eggs if you'd like to get to them, Steve. Let's do it. All right. Stamets mentions the big meeting at Federation HQ will include all four quadrants, something that marveled me earlier. This means from the Alpha, Beta, Delta, and Gamma quadrants will be present. This raises a few questions. First of all, are folks still using the Bajorian wormhole from Deep Space Nine to travel from the Gamma quadrant to the Alpha quadrant? Second? Yeah. Are they? Second? Who are the representatives on the Delta Quadrant? Boy, that's what, something I really wanted to know. Yeah. <laughs> and how did they get there? Presumably, Federation HQ is, is in the Alpha Quadrant. It better be. Yeah. Meaning for some of these representatives, it was a pretty long haul. Yeah. I know. How'd they get around that, Steve? Right. Yeah. They uh, ship everybody a spore drive. Well, they couldn't. They didn't. Nope. <laughs> People to operate it, so yeah, uh, that, that. yeah. President Relic uh, later co- mentions that some delegates are remote. Well, yeah, okay, never mind, Relic. <laughs> so, how did the one from the Delta Quadrant get there then? Right. <laughs> what is it, the 32nd century version of Zoom? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when Cobra tells Burnham he is taking over the investigation of Zora, he mentions that we both have our duties to attend to. Attend to. This could be a reference to something Kirk says to Bones in The Wrath of Khan. Spare me your notions of poetry, please. We all have our assigned duties. <laughs> Returning after her initial appearance in Season 3's People of Earth is General Ndoye, once again played by Kunzil Sitole. Last time Ndoye was a captain, but seems to have been promoted, I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she also mentions to Burnham that she no longer represents just Earth, but Titan too, which again references a peace deal forged by Saru and the Burnham in Season 3. Kovic points out that everyone on Discovery has a bias against AI because they were originally, originally royally screwed over by the AI known as Control way back in Season 2. For the most part, this is not 
this is totally true. And it's been echoes back to uh, the original series, too. Yes. However, Zora's sentience has been emerging since season two, also starting with the moment when Discovery raised its own shields to prevent it from being destroyed in such sweet sorrow. That said, Control did try to kill everyone on the ship, as well as wipe out all the sentient life in the universe. Yeah, not the, just the galaxy, the universe? Wow, yeah. <laughs> holy smokes. So the bias is somewhat understandable. In both his initial conversation with Burnham and later his long analysis with Stamets and Adira Kovic mentioned that there are some regulation against a starship having a fully integrated artificial unit. And also says there's a proscription against a fully sentient AI being fully integrated into Starfleet system. Yeah, what's their preventer for getting that? Once he, you know, gets back to a base, to linking with other ships or the whatever the base mainframe is, you know. Oh, absolutely. How would they know? They yeah, wouldn't. They wouldn't. This this seems to reference a few things at the same time. First, Kovic is clearly alluding to the events from the original uh, Star Trek episode, The Ultimate Computer, in which the M5 computer was given full control of the Enterprise, resulting in total <laughs> catastrophe. <laughs> Who saw that coming? Yep. Second, the existence of the holographic Doctor from Voyager would seem to run counter to this notion. However, the Doctor developed the ability to leave Voyager, making him not fully integrated into the ship, uh, ship system, right? Absolutely. Yeah, right. He exceeded his programming as well. Yeah. It, this show often reminds me of what Marvel does, and Marvel always, uh, in their TV shows, dots the I's and crosses the T's. Yes. <laughs> it, it seems that Star Trek tries to do the same, but not quite yeah. as effective. Yeah, they, they definitely aren't as effective as Marvel. That's right. Yeah. Maybe they should use a computer. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout the episode, there are perhaps countless different alien species, friends for this super important meeting about the DMA. Here's a quick list of ones we spotted upon second and third viewing of the episode. Before we get there, if this really was a weapon, wouldn't they use the DMA to get them all at once? Yes. <laughs> at least prevent the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Just wipe it all out right now. Yeah, there you go. We win. So here's a quick list of ones we spotted upon second and third viewings of the episode. More than one Andorian, at least one Lurian, a Cardassian, at least one Ferengi. They look different. Yes, they do. <laughs> not, for, not in a good way, either. <laughs> not that it matters with them. A Trill, an Orion, and, of course, several Vulcans and Romulans. Or Navarians. Yeah. Burnham represents, uh, presents a metaphor about the Denoblian bloodworms to the assembled government. Uh, wow, that was, that was captivating. We don't see the Denoblians there, but it's clear a shout-out to Dr. Phlox and the Denoblian doctor from Star Trek Enterprise, who cared for leeches, worms, and all sorts of other lovable, creepy crawlies in the good old NX-01. That was fun. Tarka's plan to destroy the DMA involves an isolytic explosion. This reference is a weapon used by Sanaa in Star Trek Insurrection, which, as mentioned in that time, were banned by the second Kidamore Accords. That stuff covers everything. Yep. President Relic doubles down on this assertion, indicating the rules of the Kidamore Accords seem to have been held for at least 800 years or so. Mm-hmm. Got history there. Gray points out that as a synth, he is similar position to Zora in a new life form. This is I had to remove my finger from my throat. Like, oh, stop, please. (laughs) On top of being an amazing metaphor against all sort of prejudices, this also references the fact that people accept Gray's synth body the same way they accepted a biological body. Yeah, I get what they're saying here. It's a little heavy-handed. They used to do the same type of thing back in the original series, but you had to get it yourself. 
Yeah. <laughs> and this also echoes some of the themes from Picard season one, in which the, an overall ban on synths was lifted by the end of the season as Jean-Luc himself became a synth. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Because Book wants to make an emotional decision to stop the DMA, he asked Burnham about her rash behavior when she accidentally started the Klingon War, since at the time she assumed the Klingons had killed both her parents. Burnham said she had an intrinsic knowledge of Klingon culture, which is a little bit of a, an exaggeration. Uh, did you buy that, her counterargument? I kind of did, because she did know, and they don't know anything about 10C. Right, absolutely. Okay. In truth, in the Vulcan Hello Burnham asked her adoptive father, Sarek, what to do about the Klingons, as in he recommended the Starfleet not show weakness. Also, what about the Klingons? Yeah, where are they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got rid of them a long time ago. In the shiny new future of the 32nd century, we have seen or heard from most of the major Star Trek alien species. We haven't heard a peep from the contemporary version of the Klingons. They're sitting outside the galaxy with their new weapon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the DMA roaming around, it's a very good day to die. So you'd think they would show up for this big boat. But no. That's a good question. Where are they? Yes. <laughs> Some Navarian bar. <laughs> Although some of the fans thought that maybe Tarka's weird thing on the back of his neck, glimpsed in episode 5, proved he possessed one of the more parasite aliens from the Next Generation banger conspiracy. It turns out that was not the case at all. Instead, Tarka's scars are still having being enslaved by the Emerald Chain. And now he's Mr. Mr. Sensitive. Yeah. Book of Pensions, I got rid of my scar the second I could, referencing the time he spent in an Emerald Trade Force labor camp in the season three episode Scavengers. When Tarka tells Book that he knows of another universe in which there was no war, no burn, no Emerald Chain, no Burnham, Book wonders if it's the Mirror Universe. Tarka scoffs at this, noting that there are all kinds of possibilities for a parallel universe. Yeah, well, infinite, I suppose. Yes. How do you find them? Does he exactly. go through a, like, a Rolodex? Yeah, your quantum signatures. Yeah, that's it. To do this, he paraphrases something Data had said in the Next Generation episode, Parallels, one of my favorites. All matter in the universe resonates on a quantum level with a unique signature. <laughs> so he used the phone. Yeah. This is echoed by Michael Burnham in the Discovery Season 1 episode, Despite Yourself. Kovic points out that, generally speaking, AIs can't dream unless they've been programmed to. <laughs> a little ironic there, like, what? Yes. It seems to be a double reference to the famous Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the basis for the movie's Blade Runner. But also the next generator episode, uh, Birthright Part 1, in which Data discovers he had a dreaming program which is built into his positronic matrix by his father, Dr. Noonien Soon. Kovic probably knows about this since he seemed to be a borderline expert on the history of AI in Star Trek. No, he is one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, he even says at the top of this episode telling Captain Burnham that his background includes a speciality in artificial sentience and intelligence. Yeah, we're creeping closer on this guy. Yes, we are. Adura points out that Zor is like an entirely new life form because Zor doesn't fit the strict definition of an AI. This outcome is similar to the way Picard defended Data's rights in the Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man. In that episode, Picard said famously that Starfleet was founded to seek out new life, and there it sits. Boy, I remember that well. Yes. <laughs> in this way, Zora is the new Data. Except cuter. <laughs> Another side's reference to Data, Zora agrees to become a member of Starfleet and is granted the title Specialist. <laughs> it won't be long. She wants She wants to be captain. <laughs> yeah. We aren't going to get to see that. I mean, <laughs> uh, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, I know. Did you go to Academy? No. 
This pseudo rank was previously sported by Burnham in season one of Discovery when she rejoined Starfleet, having been court-martialed. Oh, it's, she's actually pretty sad back in those days. The idea that Zora is now part of Starfleet also throws new light on the short takes episode Calypso. In that episode, Zora made it clear she ordered to hold a position by her captain. It seems clear now that the captain will be Burnham and that when Zora meets Kraft in the distant future, she's probably acting as a member of Starfleet. Well, there's a Marvel moment there. At least they they, uh, tied that all together. Absolutely. Well, do we really want to know what Fred thinks about this episode? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he gives it one out of five whispering captains. Uh, He might. Well, let's find out what he thought about this episode. Hello, Steve and Dave, and all listeners to the Fangirl Zone. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 7. It's New Year's Eve, 9 p.m., and perhaps you hear some fireworks in the background, although every sound you hear is actually prohibited because of our COVID lockdown. There is also a complete ban at the moment on fireworks. This was a much better episode than last week. In comparison, last week I gave the episode on IMDb a 4 out of 10 and this episode an 8. So that's quite a difference. I have to say I have much less problems with Zora now since she evolved from a stubborn, emotional autopilot to a new species. I was actually expecting that she would get a Starfleet rank something like commander or something like that, so that she would be in the line of hierarchy, in the line of command. Then we have the whole political thing. Some people probably won't like that. For me, it was okay. Quite reminiscent of European politics with so many countries, by the way. And then you always have some rogue individuals like Tarka, who has his own agenda and is obviously willing to take extra risks just because of his own agenda, and perhaps too much, with the whole galaxy at risk. And I have the impression that the relationship between Michael and Booker will not survive this season. Okay, that will be all for now. Greetings, till next year. Fred from the Netherlands. (laughs) Until until next star date, Fred. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for that feedback, Fred. I'm surprised he liked it. Usually this kind of stuff, especially from uh, Burnham, is like, ugh. He's like, that's one finger to the throat. He just gags him. But he actually liked it. Yeah. Well, I think it was really getting the Zora part of it. You know, he just said that the politics was just okay. Mm. So I think it was he enjoyed the Zora part of it, getting to the point where, yeah, it's not sentient AI, it's actually a a new life form that kind of made it an interesting episode for him. And and yeah, I I agree. I'm not seeing Booker and Burnham together after this unless something major happens. I think Dad needs to pop up and beat his ass again. (laughs) Yeah. Dad didn't want him taking orders from her. No, he didn't. He moved on. Yep, I'm not going to listen to what she has to say anymore. Yeah, maybe his brother will pop up and say, this is not you. You don't go out killing anything and everything. So at least it builds a lot of anticipation uh, for when they return. 
There is a trailer out there. In fact, if you watch it online, you get to see the trailer. I'm not sure that was on TV, was it? No. No, yeah, there's a trailer attached to okay. the online version now. Things blow up, lots of sparks. They, they they did a couple of you see. I don't. I hate it when they do this now. The slow walk, the slow hero walk. Right. You all walk in line like they're going down uh, Main Street in an old Western town. They're going to have a gunfight. Yeah. There's two of those in the trailer. Oh no. <laughs> oh yes. Actually, I think they did in the last episode too, where the three of the bridge crew did a slow walk. <laughs> Stop it already. Well, and my last observation is I think Fred's an AI. <laughs> well, seeing that I've spent a lot of time with him, well, at least a few days when he was here in St. Louis, mm-hmm. I think I can vouch for him that he is not an AI. <laughs> you, you didn't spot any wires? Nope. There were no, no wires. wires. No wires. <laughs> well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on each and every episode this season. Our deadline for feedback is 10 p.m. Eastern every Friday during the season. You can send your feedback via email or audio, like Fred, to contact us at fangirlzone.com. You can also go to www.fangirlzone.com and click on the contact link first. We should call it the first contact link. Yes. <laughs> where you will find several ways to contact us via email or through social media, like on Twitter, where he's at Sawyer Steve and I am at The Real ID Dave. Review and rate us on iTunes and any other platform you're using to listen to your podcast, as good ratings and reviews help other fans of the show find us, as there are a lot of other Star Trek Discovery podcasts out there. More than I can count. <laughs> Tell your friends, and we do hope you're enjoying our podcasts. And don't forget to check out the other great Fangirl Zone podcasts. Steve, I bet there are some Star Trek podcasts out there just outside the galaxy, too. Oh, I'm sure there are. <laughs> <laughs> the eighth episode is on February 10th and is titled Multiple Question Marks. In other words, we don't know. So until then, remember... This is Chief Engineer Steve. There are countless parallel universes, each with its own quantum signature. And this is Redshirt Dave. This episode left my phaser so limp it refuses to fire. Isn't there a pill for that?